Let's talk about John Schofield. I'm Chris Mikowski, and today on the Emerging Civil War podcast, we'll talk with historians Sean Michael Chick and Joseph Rickey about a man who perhaps was one of the greatest generals-in-chief the Army's ever known, or an unscrupulous snake to his colleagues. Today on the Emerging Civil War podcast. This episode is brought to you by Civil War Trails, the world's largest open-air museum, offering over 1,500 sites across six states. Civil War Trails puts you in the footsteps of famous generals, freedom fighters, and tenacious women. Follow the great campaigns turn by turn, take a historic hike, and explore beautiful downtowns. Snap a signed selfie along the way. Request your brochure today at civilwartrails.org. Follow Civil War Trails and create some history of your own. Welcome to the Emerging Civil War Podcast. I'm Chris Mikowski, and joining me today, two friends and colleagues, one from deep in the heart of Tennessee and one from deep in the southern end of the Mississippi River, I guess. I'm trying to think how deep that really is. That's the deepest part of the Mississippi. Uh, Joe Ricky and Sean Chick. Welcome, fellas. Thanks for having me. Hello. Now, I have assembled this august body of scholars to talk with me about John Schofield. And I got interested in this because um, Sean had some interesting things to say about Schofield uh, as he was writing his his book on the Battle of Nashville. And then Joe had some interesting things to say about Schofield as he and I did some battlefield touring around uh, Franklin. And uh, and so I, just as the two of them had very different things to say, I thought, let me get these two guys together and let's talk about John Schofield. And then maybe I can make up my mind by the time we're finished here. So, um, Joe, let me start with you, if you don't mind. Um, quick little rundown. You like John Schofield or not? I, I'm, putting the, I'm putting you on the spot. So I thought about how I would address this question before I even sat down. And I thought to myself, how can I say this as honestly as possible? I make no apologies for it. I am something of a John Schofield and John Bellhood apologist. I will defend both of these guys to the hilt all day long. And then into the night. I It's not that I necessarily like John Schofield. You know, I, I've always told you I, I don't really like falling in love with dead people. And I really don't think it's good to hate them either. Um there's so many people that can't stand John Schofield for any plethora of reasons. They don't like that he was a political uh, kind of force in the army. They don't like that uh, he has some less than choice things to say about George Thomas. I'm sure all of this we'll get into. Um, I always have loved to be the contrarian in the room. I think that's that's mostly the reason for liking Schofield or at least defending Schofield is everybody else hates him. So, hey, I may as well stick up for the guy. Now, I should point out that uh, that Joe juxtaposes Schofield and Hood because he works as a historian uh, and interpreter at the uh, Battle of Franklin Trust. And so he spends a lot of time with both of these men, and that's how he's become so well acquainted with them. Um, Sean, uh, your work as uh, an author with uh, the Battle of Nashville book that you did, uh, They Came Only to Die, just a wonderful book. Um, what do you think about Schofield? Well, I think uh, one, one thing I generally find, you know, the more you get into a, a civil command is that, you know, with very few exceptions, all these commanders have some talents and good moments. 
right? And so, for instance, for getting ready for getting ready for this one, I skimmed through the John Schofield biography that I'd read a long time ago, and I'm going to the part about Wilson's Creek. And Schofield was excellent. Wilson's Creek, he was up there rallying troops, leading them into attack. He's in his element. He's superb at Wilson's Creek. I wrote a book about Nashville, which even his biographer, biographer says is his military low point. You know, <laughs> so. You know, if I'm talking about in the Battle of Nashville, my opinion of Schofield is very, very negative. But I got to well, be well, honest. Sean, what about three weeks earlier? A little more mixed, I'd say, right. but definitely more positive. I mean, he's going to make some. He's going to make some mistakes. I do have a few pointed questions for you about him at Franklin, uh, in particular. But of course, you know, Mark with the Army past Spring Hill is one of his finest moments. Of course, you know. At the same time, though, I think if anybody reads the Battle of Nashville and defends Schofield's actions at Nashville, they're not being honest. <laughs> and I'm not talking about him personally involving Thomas. He just handles the 23rd very poorly throughout the battle, you know, uh, and shows extremely undue caution. But anyway, so I'm looking at I'm looking at him at, uh, uh, at uh, not only a low point, but the last thing I would say too that uh, that I was noticing as I'm skimming through the biography. Um, Schofield could be a good professional who was good to work with. And I didn't call him charismatic, but he was good at making a good impression on a variety of officers. Uh, for instance, he was uh, friendly with William Rosecrans, you know, throughout, uh, which, you know, could be a death sentence for other officers. He's, he maneuvered pretty well. Uh, he also befriended Henry Halleck. Halleck did not have a lot of close friends, although, as I always like to say, if you're a Union general in the Civil War, one of the best decisions you can make is to get on Halleck's good side. Because he'll go to bat for you every time, you know. Um, and so that, that really helps Schofield survive all the problems he has in Missouri, right? But if Schofield is underneath an officer he doesn't like, such as Samuel Curtis or George Thomas, he is an unscrupulous snake. What it like. Unscrupulous snake. Whoa. <laughs> but, but you know when you talk about sort of like you know his ability to um work with the people around him and sort of make that good political impression i mean he does rise to the the rank of general in chief of the army um mm -hmm. over the course of his career so obviously he knows how to play the politics of what's going on um and maybe some of that unscrupulousness also plays into to that rise that's late in his career we'll get to that in a few minutes but uh, you know joe unscrupulous snake what do you think about that i don't know um so I I don't know which biography you read. Is it the the James McDonough biography or is it the Donald Conway Politics of Generalship? Politics uh, of Generalship. I think that's I think that's the better of the two. To be completely honest, I, I think it's more well rounded and kind of well written. And I, I agree with your assessment. Early in the war at Wilson's Creek, excellent. Um, I think too uh, shows kind of lackluster performance at various patches throughout the war. But as you said. They all do, right? Everybody has a bad day. Schofield has a couple. John Bill Hood has a few. And you could even argue that Sherman and Grant have bad days, right? Still winning. Oh, no, you, 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 still you feel like they had bad days. You're not being honest. That's right. That's right. right. I don't know that that's much of an argument. Right. So, so they have bad days. Okay. But Nashville is uncharacteristically bad. And I completely agree with your yeah. assessment there. I don't. I don't tend to buy into some of the arguments that it's just because he doesn't like Thomas. Yes, they have that kind of storied incident back at West Point. And, and I, I guess maybe too, we haven't really touched on a lot of this, but 
But John Schofield is born in New York. He kind of comes into a pretty well-positioned family, uh, attends West Point, graduates class of 1853. He's ranked seventh in a class out of 53 graduating cadets. Um, not only would he you know, be classmates with James Birdsey McPherson, uh, who's got the coolest name in the entire American Civil War, uh, but he also uh, will be roommates, classmates, friends with his eventual adversary and John uh, Bell Hood. Uh, but there is this kind of exchange that takes place where Schofield's essentially almost expelled. The one supporting officer is George Thomas and his expulsion. Uh, and I think a lot of things have been kind of made of that exchange and that interaction between them. Uh, oh, John Schofield would never like George Thomas ever again, and Thomas would never like to work with Schofield. Um, I really appreciate that that David that uh, that Donald Connolly went into the extra work and looking at what Schofield wrote about Thomas and what in many ways Thomas wrote about Schofield. Let's not pretend that George Thomas is completely uh, without fault here. Both of them engaged in this kind of character assassination of one another after the war. And I know full well that there is a group of uh, George Thomas fanboys sitting at home. And when they listen to this episode, they're going to come to my house, they're going to burn it down, and they're going to crucify me out front for that. But Thomas, while an excellent soldier and a brilliant officer and a good, a good kind of commander of troops, he also went to bat and defended himself um, in many ways very critical of John Schofield as a subordinate. Uh, and I think there's always that chafe that exists between those, those soldiers, that friction that exists between uh, uh, superiors and subordinates, especially when you have the kind of the stakes that are, that are here at Nashville, certainly. Um, but then, too, you've got the stakes after the war who's going to be uh, staying in the army, who's going to continue on being promoted, who's going to get what assignments, you know, the coveted kind of positions would go to people like Thomas, would go to people like Schofield, who will outrank the other, who will uh, continue on this kind of track. I think John Schofield is just so good at playing the political side of the army. And that's one of the other criticisms that people often throw at him is that he is not a combat commander. He doesn't have to be. Uh, he's not a good battlefield tactician. He doesn't need to be. How does he continue to work through the ranks? He's a great politician. Uh, and one of the criticisms is that politics shouldn't be involved in the army. Uh, John Schofield would tell you that it's exactly the opposite. Uh, the military needs to be involved in politics and politicians need to keep their hands off of the military. And that's one of his great kind of strengths after the war as he ascends to, as you mentioned, the kind of chief of staff uh, position or the general in chief of the army, rather, uh, by the time he's ready to retire, he'll have reformed the army uh, to be a kind of political machine on its own. So I don't know about about Snake. I don't know about, his, you know, the the character kind of exchanges between the two. Um, but I would say, you know, Schofield has a very, very decorated Civil War career. Uh, if if you don't at least admit that, again, you're not being honest. Uh, he has this kind of breakout moment at Wilson's Creek. He's there in the kind of the Department of Missouri. Uh, he commands that department with relative effectiveness, only having the kind of political chafing with a man like Samuel Curtis, who, let's face it, difficult to get along with any day that ends in Y. And Schofield could also, as you mentioned, Sean, be a kind of perfect professional 
um, and and a kind of charismatic, I think you you had said, but but he doesn't really work so well with people who have a kind of less than pleasant disposition. I don't know that we can really sum up Samuel Curtis in a, in a different way than less than less than courteous disposition. The uh, well, me uh, having critical view of Schofield. Well, I'd say means that the uh, pro Grant or Sherman people who think that Doe Andrew Schofield's a is like a proxy. Don't worry, they'll come down to burn my house too. Okay, <laughs> um, but no, the I, I wouldn't call Schofield charismatic. Charismatic, good at playing the political game doesn't always mean you're charismatic. Uh, I do agree that politics, of course, is important. Uh, point of disagree with other people who are critical of Grant sometimes because of his ability to play politics, and I'm like, no, this is one of his strong points. You know. Uh, in the case of Schofield, uh, where things are distasteful would be uh, messages sent to Henry Halleck behind Samuel Curtis's back. Mm -hmm. The supposed message sent from George Thomas to Lucas S. Grant. Now, Politics Command, who was the author of that book again? I'm trying to blank. Uh, Donald uh, Connolly. Thank you. Uh, Connolly thinks that Schofield didn't send the message. Right. And, and not and To be fair, there's not a lot of proof one way or the other. There's right. There's right. Uh, I, I'm, I'm agreeing with I'm agreeing. You cannot be definitive. I think he did. And he destroyed it when he was secretary of war. That's what I think happened. But I'm not telling you that's what happened. That's just my educated guess. And also based on the fact that he had done similar things with Samuel Christ. Uh The other one, too. And I guess this one is. I got more of a distaste for Schofield, maybe as a person, when it came to the Battle of Prairie Grove. When he essentially tries to take credit for a victory he wasn't there for, and in many ways really bungled the Army of the Frontier's positioning on the eve of the battle, you know, and it's a telling that afterwards he has a very poor relationship with both Francis Heron and James G. Blunt, especially mm -hmm. Blunt. Mm -hmm. You know, to be fair, Blunt is also not the easiest guy to get along with. I mean, his name is Blunt, right? <laughs> yeah, I couldn't avoid that awful joke, but anyway. Uh, but no, no, I mean, you tried though. You tried. No, nah, well, I was never going to try. I was just going to say, let's just, just, just do it and go with it, you know? But, uh, um, Schofield though is militarily competent. He's able to play the political game well for the most part. I think in the case of the, the him and Thomas relationship, he claims that he didn't know that Thomas had voted against him at West Point until 1868. Right. Maybe, maybe not. My inclination is that he didn't maybe didn't know for sure, but he suspected it. Mm -hmm. And from what I can tell, George Thomas himself just didn't like John Schofield. And Thomas, you know, human warmth is not his strong suit. Yeah. Now, keep it in mind, it doesn't mean he was totally cold. I think it's one thing I point out in Nashville is that, you know, when Andrew Jackson Smith gets to Nashville with the 16th Corps, he is hugged by Thomas. Schofield mm -hmm. arrives from Franklin. Thomas gives him a cold reception. Yeah. Uh, and so I also think that Thomas might was probably annoyed that Sherman sent him 23rd Corps Schofield. He would have much rather had 14th Corps led by Jefferson C. Davis. But he also got out of the deal. He got the 4th Corps under David Stanley. Well, 4th Corps was already 4th Corps was already being sent over. You yeah. Know? I think but he, he would have wanted to keep consolidated. He gets it all as one. And he wants I think the gang, he, man. He wants the gang together, and he wants it to not yeah. be. And he, he wants the gang together, and he wants to be the one officer at that point who's a corps commander under Sherman who he does not like. Mm -hmm. You know, so 
Thomas is also going to have his difficulties. Uh, Thomas is also going to impose his own difficulties on his relationship with Schofield. And one thing I can really empathize with Schofield on is getting conflicted messages from or from Thomas as Hood is as Hood is preparing and then invades Tennessee. Mm-hmm. You know, this is one of the points where Thomas is making his share of mistakes. Some of that's also just poor information that Thomas is getting as well. So I believe mm-hmm. Schofield, when he says that he felt that Thomas had kind of left him out on the vine, you know. But like I said, my main thing is that what I mostly know is about his actions at the actual Battle of Nashville, which is not very good. And then there's what he writes about oh. Tom afterwards. Yeah. And uh, I have to pull up the exact quote. There's the one. Uh, what's that? one he says, he says that he says that Thomas was uh, not smart enough to calculate the movement of troops on a battlefield. Yeah, that's his uh, his memoir. Yeah, forty six years. Yeah, I was like, I was, I was like, oh my god, that is one. So I was a bit dumbfounded by that. One. Yeah. I don't even think Grant would say that about Thomas. No, well, I I would also point out too that the entire memoir, the forty six years in the army that he writes in eighteen ninety seven, is very much this kind of self aggrandizing self-promoting self-absorbed just ego maniac in paper um just the way that he writes he's the smartest person in the room every single time he's always made the right decision he's never uh he's never on the wrong side of any any call or decision now you've got me criticizing him uh but one of the things about the the, the about the memoir is he's very very scathing in a lot of his comments about, certainly about the Tennessee campaign. Um, but Sean, I know we'll talk about, you know, Spring Hill, kind of his greatest moment there. And Franklin, I would argue his second greatest moment. Um, but, you know, there's there's one thing in here where he says, you know, at Spring Hill, the army was never in danger. Uh, there was no great risk. And what he's doing is he's downplaying the situation that he was in, in Columbia, to make himself look like he didn't get caught with John John Bell Hood throwing 20,000 men behind him because an admission of that kind of loss of the tactical advantage, well, what would that do to his career? What would that do to his reputation, to his legacy? Um, I'll hold it up, but, you know, 46 years in the Army is very much um, a as much Schofield telling his story as it is him creating his own legacy. Um, and I don't think that that's unfair, and I don't think that that's overly critical. I think that is just an honest assessment of what he does in 97. He's not going out of his way to write a hit piece. He's very much promoting himself. That's essentially what the the purpose of a memoir is, too, is like, here's my perception of what happened to me, and I'm going to tell my story, and you're going to be selective about what you choose. Um, I kind of put this in... in, um, juxtaposition with Oliver Otis Howard's memoir, which is long and sprawling and again, makes himself look fantastic. And what do we typically know Howard for? Chancellorsville and Gettysburg. Now he certainly redeems himself afterwards, but you know, if you look at the way that he sort of uh, plays up his uh, experience with the Nez Perce Indians afterwards, and Chief Joseph is this great warrior and he's holding up that sort of stuff in order to make himself look better in the way he opposed them. And uh, I think Schofield's memoir does a lot of that same sort of myth making as you talk about. 
about um, at the expense of um, perhaps a, a little bit of exaggeration. Um, and Howard, how, how, I'd also say too, real quick, is that Howard also has that political ability to survive, you know, mm -hmm. because, you know, generally we we remember him as a fairly mediocre person and yet he thrived in that post-war. Uh, Sean, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Oh, no, you're fine. I, I didn't know if you had more than Howard there. No, I just, I mean, of course, this is on uh, the case with lots of, uh, almost all Civil War memoirs. Uh, some, of course, get get cut more slack than other ones. Um, and, you know, for instance, uh, one I like to point to sometimes is uh, the one that Beauregard co-wrote with Alfred Roman. Uh, similarly, defending his actions all the way, but I found that despite that, it was more accurate than I was thought it was going to be, especially with the Shiloh campaign. Now, not everything there, right? But I found more problems in, say, Grant's memoir, for instance. One of my favorites, though, is Sherman, which also has that, but it's also a really good read. Uh, Sherman's isn't too bad on Shiloh, except the part where he says I wasn't surprised. You know, uh, but um, yeah, of course. And I've only read the part of Schofield's memoir that dealt with Nashville. Uh, and I, I, I gave him the benefit of the doubt and thinking, oh, well, maybe the rest isn't quite as bad as this. Uh, but, um, but yeah, you know, it, it, the, the memoir, they're trying to defend your reputation. You're going to put all the excuses they have up. Some are more bitter than others. Mm. You know, I have read a few memoirs that could be honest, but one of them would be uh, Lydell's memoir, but he didn't write that for publication. He wrote personal purposes. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I'd also like to mention to Joe that if you're talking about Schofield's memoir being like this, um, you find something similar to what Advance and Retreat, the Hood one? Oh, I don't find it the same way. No. No, um, we don't find, <laughs> you don't find it as bad as Schofield? <laughs> No, no. Actually, I think just in terms of who's doing the most self-promoting, at least Hood has evidence for most of the things, and he can get people that can corroborate a lot of what he says. Schofield never really bothers to include like outside sources. He just says, this is what happened. This is how it was. This is how I remember it. And that's really the only thing that matters. I mean, the in here... Because he writes this in 1897, and David Stanley had already written kind of his experiences in the Civil War, now retitled as an American general. Uh, and Stanley said in there, you know, we were in kind of great, you know, great kind of uh, um, danger at Spring Hill. We're in great danger in Columbia. And Schofield comes back and says we were never in any danger. There was never any issues. I, I never thought that there would be a problem at, at Spring Hill. And, and Stanley says he's like, he wasn't even there. He didn't he didn't know what we were doing all throughout the day. He didn't know that Wagner's kind of 57 or General George Wagner's 5700 man division had been holding back Confederate troops all throughout the day. He didn't know about any of that until he showed up. And then the next, and then he's gone. He continues the march, which let's be honest. It's just an incredible kind of, it's the greatest kind of perfect storm. All the dominoes fell, like getting this podcast arranged, all the stars aligned. And and John Schofield carries out this incredible escape. And it really is him that does it. He does some incredible things throughout that night march. But then to come back and say, well, if the road would have been blocked in Spring Hill. I'd have just simply gone another way. Uh, and that's given <laughs> rise to so many myths and so many, you know, the, the hood was just so stupid. All it, 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 Schofield 
saying that reinforces the later myths about Hood's terrible generalship. Uh, I put that in heavy air quotes, and I can't wait for that to come back and bite me too. Um, <laughs> what was that you were saying about a target on my back, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but you know, you're talking about the the Spring Hill incident, and this I think ties back to what Sean said about Sherman and Grant not being surprised at Shiloh, and and you know they're trying to cover their butts by saying, well, this didn't happen, this didn't happen, and there's much more to admire about all of them. To admit, like, yes, they were in trouble, and look at what they did to get yeah. out of it. Like, to Aha. me, that is incredible. But, but Chris, you know, that doesn't save wait, the wait. legacy and their reputation. Yeah. yeah. You know. Wait, no, no, wait, no, no, no. This is where I'm throwing this in. Okay. All right. Okay. So, do you know who was surprised in the battle and Shrep told readers he was surprised in order to do what Chris is saying to make himself look incredible? Julius Caesar. <laughs> it fits in the Gallic War that he gets surprised the Sabas. He rallies his men, and through personal courage and fortitude, they beat back the most warlike of the Gallic tribes, the Nervi. And this is something these guys can't do. They can't emulate Caesar in that regard, huh? <laughs> yeah, you know, like, that's a that's a pretty good um, example to follow, really, you know, but... Uh, oh, no, I'm putting that in my Shiloh book. I'm going to put in there, like, you know, I'm going to... I'm going to quote some stuff from uh, Caesar admitting that he got surprised so you can be more impressed with his victory. And that was actually just a quick aside on that. That's what I'm interested in. Reading the Gallic War and already having read Civil War memoirs, I was surprised to degree to which Julius Caesar would just say, yeah, I kind of made a mistake there, but I turned things right around. You know, yeah. whereas these Civil War generals, they really have a hard time doing that. They do. They do. And I think, I think actually that's maybe one of the reasons why Caesar's Gallic War is this classic and maybe why it really worked again does well because there i mean there seems to be a something of a, a level of honesty there where it's like schofield like I, I, there's no way he's going into springfield f- feeling like as calm as a cucumber you know right. um yeah. there's no way in that kind of situation not have some sense of trepidation um the, the episode that plays out throughout that night's incredible but yeah chris i'm sorry no, yeah. well, i was gonna say let's get into that but um as i recall though joe like so Schofield writes his memoir in 1897. So, like, he's done being general in chief of the army. This he's is retired. A, he retired. This is a retirement project. So he's living large, having his fat and happy years, and thinking all these warm and wonderful, fuzzy thoughts about his own retrospective perspective on his career. So, uh, you know, it doesn't surprise me that we get that kind of memoir based on what he has achieved, <laughs> where he's at in his life, and and where he's at with his career. Um, so, so you, know, you guys have both talked about sort of the high and low here, Spring Hill and Nashville as two sides of this pendulum. Let's talk about Spring Hill for a second in more detail, and we'll kind of let the pendulum swing in the other direction. Um, easily Schofield's best day or best night of the war. Joe, you're a Spring Hill guy. I've been on the field with you. You're an incredible interpreter in the, the, on that battlefield. Uh, give us the nutshell of what happens at, at Spring Hill. Well, I mean, way to set the bar. Now I have to not screw this up. Um, so uh, where do we find ourselves? Uh, November the 28th of 1864, uh, John Schofield has cut all the pontoons, burned all the bridges over the Duck River uh, in Columbia, just, well, as I sit here, about 12 miles to the south of me uh, in Spring Hill, Tennessee, down south of Columbia, Schofield cuts the accesses uh, for John Bell Hood to cross over to the north side of the Duck River, effectively leaving Hood and his army stranded. Uh, He moves his army to the north side, and 
I think the big flaw here is uh, one of the great criticisms that uh, he will provide of George Thomas at Franklin is that Thomas neglected to send him uh, pontoons. Well, he had cut all the pontoons and sent them down the duck that Thomas had sent him a few days earlier. And so Thomas naturally isn't going to send them more. But nevertheless, uh, he cuts the pontoons, burns the bridges, and begins to kind of fortify the north side of the duck uh, in Columbia. And at the same time, John Bell Hood on the south side begins to convene with his commanders, and he comes up with this plan. Essentially, what he'll do, he's going to leave 10,000 men and the bulk of the Army's artillery behind in Columbia, that corps being left under the Commander General Stephen Dean Lee. Uh, and then he will shift them uh, 20,000 men about under the command of Brigadier, uh, excuse me, of uh, uh, Generals uh, Benjamin Cheatham and uh, Generals A.P. Stewart and move them across the Duck River 12 miles behind Schofield's lines to the town of Spring Hill. Uh, Hood will move up what is uh, then known as the Davis Ford Road. Today, the only kind of extant piece of it is on what is now John Sharp Road as it comes up through Spring Hill. Uh, the Confederate Army arrives and... I think to be fair, uh, we should talk a little bit about what Schofield goes through that morning. Hood begins his movement by 5 a.m. And within you know hours, Schofield has reasonable and I would argue conclusive evidence that Hood's army is on the move. Uh, he has an intelligence report from Colonel Sidney Post. Uh, Philip Sidney Post's brigade had gone out on a kind of infantry reconnaissance of the Duck River and Post reports back, you know, we had seen the tail ends of columns going across the Duck. Schofield, in a very, I think, characteristic way, Sean, would you agree that he is cautious as a kind of a general default? Um, methodical, I think, is a good word for Schofield. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd say I'd say methodical. Coming cautious is usually methodical is always like, uh, you know, I guess like um, more. Uh, positive uh adjective mm -hmm. used for something like cautious i would definitely say uh definitely say methodical uh not a commander known for lightning fast maneuvers he didn't want to battle at prairie grove for instance i think it's one right. of the reasons he was also upset it, it happened and then the subordinates got the credit um and you know i mean that that typified him in the atlanta campaign yes uh, yes you know, i mean his it's his finest moment there and i would actually say it's the second finest moment is not franklin it's him find the flank to get around Kennesaw Mountain. You know, that's an example of that's an example of kind of generalship Schofield's bias, Sean. I work here. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta give him some credit for what I could see. All right. Um, well, we'll get to Franklin. I got a few questions for you because you're the guy who knows way more than I do. But anyway, but well, yeah, no, it's let's call him cautious, let's call him methodical. He gets the report from Post that there's troops on the move. And Schofield's initial reaction is not that the flanking maneuver is coming from behind him, but in fact that the general attack is going to come from Lee's Corps with the artillery. So he organizes the kind of evacuation of his army from Columbia, but he doesn't start moving the infantry. This is where I give him a lot of credit. He moves what he in 1897 calls the impedimenta, all the artillery, all the wagons, all the teams to move it all. So 800 wagons, 50 pieces of artillery, and some six, almost 7,000 draft animals start to make their way up the Columbia Turnpike. Here is another shortcoming for Schofield's entire operation. Chris, you and I have talked about this. I have some actually nice and courteous things to say about James Wilson and the Federal Cavalry throughout this campaign. 
but here I is do a not. <laughs> here's a problem that Schofield has. They're off uh, further to the east trying to consolidate when Nathan Bedford Forest Cavalry shows up and starts to drive them further and further away from Schofield. Uh, and so Schofield is left really with the option of using two divisions from the 4th Corps of the Army of the Cumberland and the Command of General David Stanley. He's going to send Kimball's division and General George Wagner's division. Kimball's troops will fortify on the Rutherford Creek in Spring Hill, as it approaches Spring Hill, rather. Uh, and Wagner's division continues into Spring Hill uh, with Stanley and with some of the, uh, the Fourth Corps' uh, artillery. They'll fortify, kind of move in to establish positions all around Spring Hill. No sooner do they arrive than does Confederate cavalry show up. Uh, and then just a few hours later, the Confederate Army, the vanguard of the Confederate Army, uh, Hood in the lead with General Patrick Claiborne's division, come up the Davis Ford Road and attack there. Fighting goes uh, on for about 45 minutes, and in that kind of sharp 45-minute fight, we can estimate there's probably 600 to 700 casualties uh, here in Spring Hill. There's not really great numbers, largely because of how fast everything moves. The Confederate Army's objective had been to block the Columbia Turnpike by 5 o'clock that evening. It's dark just as we're going into right now, I was reminded as I was driving home, this is what it would have been like. Uh, so as I stumbled around in the darkness looking for my keys to get into the house, uh, I felt kind of at one with the Confederate Army that afternoon here in Spring Hill. Don't uh, don't worry, though. You will soon be able to find your keys by the light of the fires that people set on your house because you're talking ill of John Bell Hood. I remember that. Oh, I'm singing <laughs> his praises, my friends. Come on. I can't win here. Uh, Oh, so the Confederate Army fails to block the Columbia Turnpike. Uh, and to Schofield's credit, he had moved the guns and wagons throughout the day. He had moved the first portion of his infantry divisions uh, under, under uh, Stanley. That afternoon, he begins the movement of the rest of the army out of Columbia. Uh, and we find him just after darkness kinds of sets in, just to the south of Spring Hill, and then that evening, as he looks up north from uh, kind of the south side of Spring Hill, looking north towards Franklin, uh, there are campfires spread out all along the east side of the Columbia Turnpike, but off to the west, it is pitch black darkness. Uh, and he begins to move General Thomas Ruger's division forward. Ruger goes and and Cox and uh, uh, Kimball and, and then uh, the whole Riley, uh, the whole rest of the army just continues to move right through that night. Um, this is a theory. I cannot show you any hard and fast evidence other than the fact that the numbers, the math, and the timing adds up. Uh, one of the things I have come to believe the longer and longer I think about it, the longer and longer I, I walk the ground and I, I tell the story daily. And I know there's that thing of you kind of convince yourself, you get that confirmation bias. For so long, people have said he moved all the guns and wagons and all the horses at night. I think the guns and wagons are probably through Spring Hill and in Spring Hill by around two o'clock in the afternoon, uh, if not by three. And by the nightfall, he's just got to move the guns and wagons to the north side of town and then they're gone. But that night, the incredible thing is that he slips this column of kind of 23,000 men along the south side of Spring Hill by 4 a.m. picks up the 5,000 man division of George Wagner. Um, Schofield makes the first run through Spring Hill, though. He comes here, he meets with David Stanley. Um, there's this story that supposedly comes out of the McKissick house uh, that Schofield set up his headquarters there. Well, there's no real proof of that. Um, he wasn't in Spring Hill long enough for him to have set up headquarters. But this story is that he was pulling in his beard and he was 
wrapping his hands with anxiety knows um if anything it makes for a great story it shows the anxiety that was in the air and it just proves what he says in 1897 that at no point was there any danger um but he meets with stanley stanley tells him what the situation is you know we've got a perimeter established around spring hill confederate troops are you know 800 yards in some cases but the road is not blocked schofield with his staff then heads north on north on the columbia turnpike and for all intents and purposes, this is an army commander. I don't know how large his staff necessarily is, but think of the kind of risk that's being taken that evening in the pitch black darkness with no understanding of what lies in front of you for an army commander to ride out along the Columbia Turnpike. Um, I mean, it does not go so well for, for your boy, Chris, back in May of 63, right? So he rides through this kind of pitch black darkness, arrives in Thompson Station, and there's still not any conclusive proof that the road isn't blocked. And so Schofield turns to an aide, Captain William Twinning, and he essentially tells Twinning, you know, here's a message. It's a request for reinforcements. Ride up to the telegraph office in Franklin and deliver it. And I think in one of the most dramatic moments of the night, Schofield wrote about in his memoir, and again, take it with a grain of salt, I buy it. I think it's really cool. Um, Schofield said, I sat silently in the saddle and I listened and I waited for Twinning's hoofs to fade out in the distance. And when they did, I knew the road was open. It's this Talk about the snake move, though. I'm going to go back yeah. to Sean's thing. Like, let me send this poor orderly off to his doom. Yeah. Oh, to get through. I've often wondered if William Twinning would have read that in 1897, he would have been like, what the hell, man? There I was thinking I was doing something important. You were just waiting to see if I was gonna get shot. <laughs> oh no, believe me, it's crossed my mind, right? <laughs> but nevertheless, Twining does arrive. Uh, and as the hoofs do fade out, Schofield orders Ruger's division forward and the evacuation continues. 4 a.m. orders come for Wagner and the artillery to pull back and Wagner's division that had been the first into Spring Hill uh, takes up their position at the rear guard. Uh, of the federal army schofield meanwhile arrives in franklin um we put it sometime between four kind of 4 30 in the morning uh he heads into town jacob cox heads to the carter house um and this is really the first time that schofield becomes aware that he has bigger problems on his hands maybe that he anticipated he had just carried out and i will argue this until the day that i die this is the hill i will die on uh sean i, I just i'm willing to go that far with this um John Schofield carried out the most daring escape in the history of the United States Army on November the 29th of 1864. Nobody had ever done anything quite like it. Nobody, I can argue, has probably done anything like it since. Uh, but he gets to Franklin. He arrives at the Harpeth River. Uh, and that is when problems begin to mount. A uh, flood two weeks earlier had largely damaged the county bridge. There's structural issues with the footbridge. The earth and fords are washed out. Uh, and so Schofield turned to his chief of engineers, William Twinning, our old friend from the Telegraph uh, run that morning, uh, and tells him, essentially, we need to build a bridge. Uh, and what they'll use as the span is the Nashville Indicator Railway trestle, and they'll rip down all the kind of weatherboarding, fencing, planks, whatever they can find. Schofield's anticipation is to have the Federal Army out of Franklin by 6 o'clock that evening. In his mind, at 4 a.m., there is no possibility that there could be a battle here, but better safe than sorry. He goes back to the south side of town, meets with Jacob Cox, who's already established his headquarters at the uh, home of Fountain Branch and 
uh, Carter and his family. Uh, and he tells them essentially, I'm going to oversee the bridge crossing. You will command the troops on the battlefield. Now, he gets a lot of flack for that. I would argue that that's probably the best decision he can make. The man graduated seventh in the class from the number one engineering school in the country. He knows a bit about this aspect of things. He trusts twinning. Uh, and two, who is the kind of better combat commander in the Atlanta campaign? Who is it that Sherman was advocating to come with him on the march to the sea? It's Cox. Uh, Jacob Cox is a brilliant, brilliant tactical commander. It's the best decision that Schofield could make is to leave Cox in command of the troops. Uh, so Schofield moves to the north side of town. Uh, by kind of midday, he's moved over to the north side to uh, Fort Granger. Uh, and that is kind of where he sets up his uh, an observation throughout the day, his headquarters being over at the Truett House uh, throughout much of the day as well. Uh, so Schofield is constantly kind of involved with the frontline actions. But I, I think that gets us to the morning of the 30th. And um, I think this is, you know, if Spring Hill is his best day, uh, Franklin is probably his second best day. Yeah. yeah, but it's a it's a out of the frying pan into the fire sort of situation where he escapes Spring Hill uh, under the cover of darkness and then finds himself um, embroiled in the yeah. Battle yeah. of Franklin. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but, you know, and, and I have stood on that ground, um, you know, looked at how close the pike was from where the Confederates were encamped. You and I have been out on that ground together. And, you know, it is one of those most incredible things when you see just what a close thing it was. Um, it's a pretty amazing um, perspective to see. Sean, um, as you listened to Joe's account of, of what happened, Emma, how do you rate Schofield in the midst of all of that activity? I do want to say real quick, Sam, with the, the most daring escape uh, of an army, uh, I, I was trying to think, I was like, is there one more daring? And I'm like, well, it's a question of degrees, but I'll only say that George Washington at Long Island may disagree with you. <laughs> oh, see, that's a good one. Now I'm going to have to start thinking about this. Like, yeah, yeah, but I mean, like, but you know, that's just by degrees. Of course, this is daring. You can see the comment section now. This guy's an idiot. He doesn't know anything about daring escapes. You know, <laughs> uh. it's it's, but it's it's all it's it's all a question of degrees. Definitely in the American Civil War, and especially for the number of troops commanded, it's a very impressive moment, isn't it? Uh, and I yes, highly rate him for that. I like your defense of him being the North Side of France. Because they're leaving Cox in command because him and Stanley, those are very good tactical commanders, proving combat leaders. You know, I have a very high opinion of David Stanley and Cox. You know, mm -hmm. kind of hard not to. And also, by the way, once again, my usual plug: David Stanley has the best memoir because he bluntly tells you everything he thinks. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Actually, I have thought to reach over and grab it off the shelf right here. In fact, I'm going to do that because he. <laughs> excellent <laughs> oh yeah no if if, if you uh if you like, like me and you like good insults and venom it's some good stuff you know so what did uh, uh what did david stanley think of john schofield let's find out oh no <laughs> oh god there's also what he thinks how he go to the passages on garfield oh, god anyway but these two no, i mean you know okay david stanley kind of an acidic personality but insanely brave excellent commander uh jacob cox Excellent tactical commander. So I think that's a good defense you have of Schofield being on the North River because the most common thing I hear said against him is that he said, okay, well, you guys over here, I'm going to go across the river where it's safer. 
And yeah. I've always felt that I've always felt inherently that must be unfair because I know Scofield's not a coward. I read what he did at Wilson's Freak. Yeah. You know? So, so, he, <laughs> so I can I see more of the logic in that. Uh, now that's a that's a good defense. But I guess it's also why I can't go with Franklin's second best day if we're having to rank these sort of things because he's setting the ground, but he is not that involved in the battle. Uh, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Stanley himself gets wounded at Franklin, and doesn't he get the Medal of Honor for that or something? Yeah, uh, by '83, I think it's the year before yeah. his memoir comes out. Um, but right. even oh. to oh. all three of them, Cox. Stanley and Schofield, all three of them aren't necessarily hands-on involved in the battle. Uh, Cox is out on the west side of the line when the attack begins. He makes his way back towards the center. He's largely there by the time that the the kind of the center's broken and reinforcements are being brought up. Um, Stanley, throughout the day, naturally will make a lot of mistakes uh, with his order around 11.30 to Wagner's division. Um, and then there's all the discrepancies because even Schofield will weigh in uh, on Wagner's division. And, and as both of you know, and several people probably listening to this, um, I've been working for the last five years on a biography of George Wagner. Uh, and one of the biggest critics of his kind of failures at Franklin, failures at Franklin, uh, is uh, John Schofield. Um it's because he's not a professional soldier. So, but I don't know how how much I could really say that everybody else was involved. Yes, Stanley rides up to the front. Yes, Cox is in the center, but it's still Schofield's army and it's still Schofield exercising control over Cox uh, because he's sending him orders throughout the day. They're constantly in communication with one another. Um, I think one of the great misunderstandings is that, as you said, Schofield goes to the other side and that's it. He's over there. You guys are over there. He still has his hands on the army. He's still communicating very, very effectively uh, with Jacob Cox throughout the day. Okay. Thank you for letting me know about that one. I've heard that criticism and I didn't have an opinion on it. I do want to mention one quick thing. You're talking about medals of honor, right? Uh, yes, Schof- come on. <laughs> whoa, whoa, wait, wait. Schofield got a medal of honor for Wilson's Creek. Yes. He received that medal of honor and he was the commander of the army. Yes. <laughs> he gave himself the Medal of Honor is basically what that was. Essentially. <laughs> oh, well, however, however, I, I want to be fair to the guy. Game recognizes game, man. Wilson's, by all accounts of Wilson's Creek, it's deserved. Yeah. <laughs> but, but this is like uh, what Leonid Brezhnev gave himself the highest medal of the Soviet Union. <laughs> oh, no, there's a comparison. <laughs> I don't know that I'd go that far. Well, uh, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it's it's still a similar thing. Although nobody collects medals like Brezhnev, you know. I mean, you've seen the, seen that jacket of his. <laughs> but anyway, <clears throat> no. Um, thanks for clarifying that, about Franklin. I didn't know the degree to which he was in contact with. If they felt like they had been left out there, or if he was constantly, uh, if if he knew what was going on, you know. So, uh, so if we have Spring Hill as his best day and Franklin is maybe his second best day or Kennesaw is his second best day, I'll let you guys arm wrestle over that. But it's just a couple weeks later that he has probably his worst day. Um, Sean, tell us a little bit about Schofield at Nashville and how the pendulum swings so far. All right. Well, starting off, of course, may or may not have sent a note to Grant. I believe that he did, but I'll never say 100%. We just don't know. One thing is clear, him and Thomas do not like each other. 
Now, Thomas does include Schofield in any kind of planning that he is doing. There is a discrepancy about when Thomas decides to not attack right away. That's because of the weather. And Schofield in his memoir says that he 100% backed Thomas right away at that moment. All the other accounts say that Schofield simply said, I will obey orders, or simply said, okay, I'm, I support your decision, but it was done with no enthusiasm, and it was done towards the end. And that's something to keep in mind, too. This wasn't just a Thomas versus Schofield thing. We're talking about Schofield was able to, you know, he was able to create a good network of support and was good at politics. That's me he doesn't have enemies. He is not liked by Thomas Wood or James Wilson and James Stedman, James Stedman despises him, even calls him a coward, which is going way too far. <laughs> so it's not just Thomas. George Thomas is old. The, all these commanders around him also found what he did at Nashville distasteful. So he doesn't really, he's not really enthusiastically backing Thomas. Um, he gives out the orders. Gofield's division, 23rd Corps, is going to swing out to the right flank. At the same time, to his left, Wilson's cavalry is going to be attacking the redoubts. Now understand, Wilson's cavalry, you know, Joe was saying he has good things to say about him. You just say he didn't, Chris. One thing's for sure, though, by the time you're getting at Nashville, uh, they have a big turnaround cavalry. And they're going to be extremely effective in the battle and in the pursuit the day afterwards. And Thomas literally said, I need time to get more horses, to have better organized cavalry, and that pays off. You know, so... Wilson's cavalry, and then also Smith's 16th Corps and elements of 4th Corps. They're overrunning these redoubts, attacking the Confederate line. 23rd Corps was not heavily engaged. By the time they do, the sun is setting, and they're moving towards Compton Hill, which is they called Shy's Hill. They're not able to get there soon enough. Not their fault. Once again, the sun is setting. It's a short day. It's winter time. But when they get near Compton Hill, one of the Confederate brigades led by Coleman. Uh, I want to say it's not really a counterattack. It's more like they didn't advance probe. And in the nighttime, that confusion, evidence to suggest that Schofield, for some reason, conflated it into thinking that he had been attacked at night and stopped that way. And his biographer in Politics Command uses the word that he was snake bitten by Franklin because, like Joe said, he did not expect to fight at Franklin. And even though the Federals won, uh, the, it was a very, very violent battle. You know, one of the most, one, one of the bloodiest battles of 1864. Uh, or at least once you get past the, the first attack on Petersburg. So, you know, he fought, he fought this ferocious battle. He didn't expect it, Franklin, and he knew that Hood was very aggressive, and that plays a big part on December 16th. Now, Schofield's memoir says that he did not get orders from Thomas to attack on the 16th. I believe this is true. This is the biggest mistake Thomas makes during the Battle of Nashville is I think that Thomas saw that Hood's army had been forced out of their defensive lines on December 15th, and that Thomas assumed this is over. He's not just going to stand and fight again, is he? But he is. Now, Schofield goes to Thomas and says, I would, I'm this guy at West Point. I was at Franklin. He's going to stay and fight. But here's the funny part. This is where Schofield's wrong. Schofield says that he told them he's going to attack us. That's not the plan. It's still Hood hoping that Thomas will send his men in and they'll be slaughtered Fredericksburg style. And then you can use that to gain some advantage afterwards. 
So Schofield's right about that. I think his memoir is reason to see that he's wrong. And it, to be fair, December 16th, he orders for the Federals to march out do come in slowly. That's a valid criticism of George Thomas. Now, at this point, 23rd Corps to the right of them is Wilson. Wilson's trying to get around Compton's Hill. Schofield's 23rd Corps, Andrew Jackson's the 16th Corps facing Compton's Hill. Schofield is being told to attack, and he says instead that he needs support. He's afraid that Hood is going to attack him. He also sees how tall Compton's Hill is and believes it's an imposing defensive position. It does look that way to him. Andrew Jackson Smith is also somewhat cautious, but Thomas gives more troops to Schofield. Schofield still doesn't do anything. There's also, I think, Schofield relying on Wilson's cavalry to get around the flank at Compton's Hill and accomplish the, you know, outflank him and then they can beat him back. I mean, they can force Hood to retreat. And I believe this also might be the reason why Wilson didn't like Schofield and had very negative things to say about him afterwards, because Wilson felt like on December 16th that he was fighting alone, successfully fighting, but fighting alone. And by also Wilson and well, Wilson came to really admire Thomas throughout the campaign. So he becomes one of his biggest advocates after the war. So eventually, uh, uh, John MacArthur, division commander, under Andrew Jackson Smith, he sees that the federal artillery is suppressing the Confederates. He's been able to do enough probes where he can see that their defensive position is not that well placed on this imposing hill. And essentially goes up to Thomas and Smith and says, unless you tell me otherwise, I'm attacking in about 30 minutes. And they, they essentially don't say anything, which silences John launches an attack. The Confederate starts to break. Eventually, Schofield orders 23rd Corps forward. And they also make it to Compton. So by the time the line's already collapsing, and also by that time, Wilson had also turned the flank. So this perfect disaster happens to shatter who has left. And the 23rd Corps did nothing there. They did, they still showed an extreme amount of caution for the situation he was in. And you know, was begging for more troops from Thomas. There was no evidence he was about to be attacked and was essentially letting Wilson fight the fight on his own with no support. Um, in the pursuit afterwards, I think it's very telling that George Tom lies on James Wilson and the Fourth Corps, and even James Stedman towards him, who was commanding this kind of reserve corps of garrison troops. He's relying on them to go after him. And I would say it's because Schofield had shown so much caution at Nashville and had been so difficult to work with. And if James Stedman's account is to be believed, Stedman and somebody already went to Thomas and told him, hey, he sent a message to Grant. And at the same time, Wood and other officers had also went to him and said, hey, he's bad-mouthing you. Now, some people might say that those officers are just trying to protect Thomas. They just don't like Schofield. But I think Schofield probably had said a few choice things around some of these men, and they had overheard other people had, and they were getting it back to Thomas. So Thomas... I don't like this guy. I don't trust this guy. And the one battle where he's been directly in my command, he was the weakest link out of all the Corps commanders. And it's also telling something else too. You know, 23rd Corps, the Battle of Nashville, the official casualties are 3,000. I actually think they're probably higher. Regardless, the official casualty count of 3,000 casualties, 23rd Corps, the entire 23rd Corps lost 196 men. 
And that also, I believe, created a lot of resentment with these other officers. They really felt like Schofield had not done his part, and I think they're correct. And then, last but not least, I didn't mention this earlier when I talked about the unscrupulous snake thing, right? What did Schofield do after Nashville? He sent a message to Grant saying, please transfer me out of here with 23rd Corps, and then went to Thomas and said, hey, can you give me more troops? So that when he left, he was a reinforced 23rd Corps. <laughs> and Thomas very understandably was angry because Thomas was planning his own spring offensive with 4th and 23rd Corps. And he looked at that and said, I can't do anything with my infantry. So he's going to rely on James Wilson's cavalry to, you know, lead that major raid through Alabama and Georgia. You know, uh, so that's another reason why I do believe he sent that message to Grant and he was able to destroy that message at least. <laughs> you know, it's, so, just, uh, it's in keeping with things he's, it's in keeping with things that he's done. So it's not impossible. So that's why for for Schofield, what I think you have having Asheville is two things. He is a methodical commander who can be given to caution. And we you can see that during the prairie, the lead up to Prairie Grove. To be fair, in the lead up to Prairie Grove, he also was in some poor health. I think he had a I think he might have had an operation or surgery or something. So health wasn't great anyway, regardless. And you see the same thing with George Thomas. Anything he has in common is that in both cases, he's serving under men he does not like particularly well. They don't like him. So I think what you have is somebody who, and this is a common thing, you're under the command of somebody that you have a bad relationship with, you're not fighting, you're not at your best. You know, and that is where some of Schofield's more negative traits as a man and a commander come out. He definitely has positive traits as a man and commander. And the other thing to add, too, is that of all the commanders of the Army after the Civil War, He's the best one. He's the one who does serious reforms to the army when he's commander and advocates for reforms all the way practically up until the day he died, which I think was like 1906, 1907. So I'll mention that again, you know, Schofield is like anybody, most of us. He's got good days and bad days, good traits and bad traits. But I think that's the mixture that leads to him not doing so well. Under a commander doesn't like in a situation he doesn't want to be in. And you will see Schofield at his personal and professional worst. I'll give you my only defense of him in Nashville. And <laughs> go on, man. <laughs> his reactions with Thomas. He had been working kind of on and off with Thomas through the Atlanta campaign and then is under his command throughout this campaign. And again, I can hear the cult of Thomas followers outside the window now. They've gathered, they're on the front lawn, <laughs> torches are lit, the pitchforks are out. Oh, that, that's right. It was the Thomas uh, followers, not the hood ones. I apologize. Right, right. The hood yeah. followers, they're, they, I mean, you know, all six of us, we're in the fan club. We know one another. Um, Thomas, I will say, it's a, the, the, hand, the hood supporters are a small fan club, but a very devoted one. <laughs> look, I'm the president, okay? <laughs> president <laughs> fan club, right? Um, Wait, no, so I thought Steve Davis was your president. <laughs> I No, I think he hates hood. Now I can't tell. Wishwashy. Okay. Um, but he's positive on Atlanta anyway. For for Hood or for Tom, no, for Schofield, uh, for Thomas and for Schofield, uh, they had been working in this kind of unagreeable, disagreeable kind of relationship through really the end of Atlanta. Thomas is sent to Nashville. Schofield is sent to slow down Hood's progress, and they have a terrible line of communication with one another thomas says one thing the next day schofield accomplishes what thomas has asked and thomas kind of 
moves the goalpost, changes things a little bit, um, sends orders for Schofield to move on Pulaski, then reneges on those orders. And then Schofield basically says, well, the hell with it. I'm going to go to Pulaski. I'm going to fortify four miles north of the town. And then when I'm ready, I'll pull back to Columbia. And I'm going to defend along the Duck River. Thomas says that's okay. Then says, hold out in Columbia for three days. Franklin is the same situation. Schofield arrives in Franklin knowing that if he has to fight Hood there, that the fight had better only be one day and that he had better be able to get the army out of there. And what does Thomas tell him? Holding Franklin for three days. Try and hold out for a day, maybe two, maybe three. Schofield's working with this kind of never-ending bar movement uh, or goalpost movement on Thomas's side. And Thomas, I think largely uh, uh, going against him here, he doesn't have the kind of tactical field presence that Schofield has. Thomas is in Nashville. Schofield's with the army. He knows what the reality of the situation is. Thomas is getting things, gleaning them from his reports. Uh, so I, I, again, I defend him there. That's really my only defense. I do agree with you. And I should say too, Sean, I like your book on Nashville. I wrote an appendix chapter for it. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like we don't, we don't agree on some things. Right? Oh, of course, man. <laughs> oh yeah. No, I, I don't feel anything bad here at all. Man. But, but I agree. Yeah, no, you, you know, like that, you know, like that one, I, uh, that one guy oh. one time he told me, uh, what well, that one guy tell me, uh, I don't think Grant disliked Thomas that much. And I'm like, okay. It's a I guess the Titanic didn't sink either, huh? So anyway. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree with you. If you look at it, it, Thomas is you know, micromanaging Schofield probably too much. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I assume that's just I think that's also Thomas actually having a case of nerves and also simply not trusting his subordinates so much. He would have preferred David Stanley and command down there. Definitely. So uh, we're we're gonna run out of time here, but real quick, um, Schofield's not a guy most people remember today. Even though he does become general in chief of the army, um, when we think about top generals of the war, he's not a guy whose name really comes up that often. Why don't we remember Schofield? I think that that's one of the greatest disservices uh, of Schofield and his kind of legacy and his his memory in the war. Uh, he is a man who is there from 1861 all the way to 1865. And I think, interestingly enough, politically, he is not a Republican. He's a Democrat. And, and somehow he manages to survive despite his personal politics. Uh, after the war, he leads a brilliant military career. I mean, we can sit here and nitpick some of the things that he did throughout the war. But by and large, you know, he's the superintendent at West Point, begins army reforms at West Point. Uh, he's named general in chief of the army uh, and he reforms the army. And I think if you're looking for what kind of what his memory should be, not only does he have this incredible civil war career, he builds the army uh, that goes into the 20th century. He builds the army that fought in the Spanish-American War. He builds the army that goes with Pershing into the First World War. His fingerprints are on that officer uh, kind of development. He's uh, the kind of the lead advocate for professionalism in the military. No more political generals, no more appointees. Even if you're a militia commander in John Schofield's mind, if you're in the National Guard, you ought to have gone to West Point. Um, he begins military education programs. I think that's probably, um, Civil War career aside, his greatest kind of uh, contribution to American military history and to the United States Army. 
um, is the fact that he has reformed the army into the modern uh, military force that will greet the challenges of the 20th century uh, very, very ably, uh, very, very adeptly. He molds those armies. He molds those commanders. Um, it might be a step too far to say, but uh, you would not have a man like John Blackjack Pershing or, for that matter, uh, MacArthur uh, or Patton or Eisenhower without the professionalism uh, that Schofield instills into the army uh, throughout the 1880s, 1890s, and into the next century. Uh, and if you're looking for a real lasting legacy, uh, still present today, Schofield Barracks in, uh, in Pearl Harbor, named for him, um, I think a fitting testament, a fitting monument uh, to the man that saw the open door to the Pacific and modernized the military. Yeah. Tom, what do you think? Yeah, I would say, um, I, I, I'd say, of course, but of course, Schofield is not single-handedly doing it. But you know, it's interesting to compare him to. It's a lot of things he's trying to do. They, I'm sorry, that I'm sorry that he does do. William Tecumseh Sherman kind of tried to do. Yeah. But Sherman is completely politically inept. You know, Sherman owed his position because he, you know, he had the friendship of Halleck and of Grant, and of course, he's got a brother who's a senator who was one of Abraham Lincoln's first major supporters. So Sherman could have could have could have formed the Civil War to be a little uh, politically inept. Schofield, you know, even though he didn't survive the political snake pit of Missouri, nobody really did in a lot of ways. But like Joe said, he was a Democrat, but he was also, unlike George McClellan, he was a Democrat who not planned to run for office. And unlike Don Carlos Buell, who I'm more positive on than most, but unlike Don Carlos Buell, he's flexible personally about war. So he will eventually accept you know, the fact that uh, they should make black, uh, black soldier, the USCT, even though he was never thrilled about him, you know, he accepts that in a way that Don Carlos Buell would have never accepted that. But ultimately what I think it is, is that Schofield wasn't involved in enough major battles of the civil war. 23rd Corps is not the most heavily engaged corps in the Atlantic campaign. You know, I mean, somebody like George Thomas, he's the rock of Chickamauga. You know, uh, Sherman and Grant are at Shiloh. I mean, hell, Meade's at Gettysburg. We can go on with these other generals that are better than Schofield. I think it simply has to do, a big part of it has to do with that. And I think uh, all the commanders had people who didn't like them and they didn't like them, right? I'll say this. I think one of the things that was to the advantage of Grant and Sherman and Sheridan, all three of them wrote memoirs. All three of the memoirs were successful. Hooker, Rosecrans, Buell, these didn't write memoirs. And I write some articles here and there, but none of them wrote memoirs. However, Schofield does write a memoir. And now I'm going to find that quote exactly that I have to read because it's quotes like this that I think really hurt Schofield because, you know, you read Grant's memoirs, he's critical of Thomas, but he also gives him some credit. You know, there's a, the relationship's a little more complicated than maybe I sometimes say, but Grant would never write anything like this. Um. Here it is. Thomas did not possess in a high degree the activity of mind necessary to foresee and provide for all extensions of military operations, nor the mathematical talent required to estimate the relation of time, space, motion, and force. This is one of the most ignorant and arrogant things I've ever read in a Civil War memoir. <laughs> and I do think that he did... The kind of enemies he attracted was to George Thomas. And like Joe was saying, George Thomas has his rabid fan club that'll come for you, right? 
But I mean, James Wilson wrote his excellent memoirs. They're not very kind to Schofield. You know, David Stanley's memoirs are not very kind to Schofield. So enough people wrote memoirs who didn't like Schofield to also leave an impact. But I would ultimately say the biggest one is that he wasn't enough of these giant famous battles. You know, that's a big very one. Good. Very good. Well, you guys have given me lots to think about. I don't know that I've come to any decisions about Schofield that I uh, hadn't come to before, but I've got lots to think about. You can join the Schofield fan club. Membership fee is pretty cheap. Okay. <laughs> There's only two other members, so it's pretty lonely here. You can, you can uh, go with me and just say that he's got good days and bad days. <laughs> Don't we all? That's and that's the thing, you know. And the important part about this discussion is is that we do all have good days and bad days, and uh, so hopefully, the two of you have provided our listeners with lots to think about and ways to reconsider what they may think they have known about Schofield, and go find out some things they did not know about Schofield. So, Joe, Sean, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Always. I'm Chris Mikowski for the Emerging Civil War Podcast. Thanks so much for being with us. We'll see you online on the battlefield and a thank you to our sound engineer jackson mikowski our producer edward alexander and our associate producer sarah k byerly thanks to the second south carolina string band for the theme music that they provide for us you can find them on facebook and on youtube search for second south carolina string band also, thanks to our sponsor, Civil War Trails, the world's largest outdoor museum with more than 1,500 sites in six states. Start planning today by checking civilwartrails.org for your free brochure. If you like what you're hearing here on the Emerging Civil War podcast, please be sure to share, like, subscribe, let your friends know about all the great conversations we're having. And of course, don't forget to join us online at emergingcivilwar.com. More than 30 historians helping to spread the gospel of the Civil War, keeping people connected with America's great defining event. And we want you part of that conversation at EmergingCivilWar.com. On behalf of Sean Michael Chick and Joe Rickey, I'm Chris Mikowski. Thanks so much for being with us here on the Emerging Civil War podcast. We will see you online and on the battlefield. <laughs>